In 2009, I was on a medical mission trip. I am not medical at all, but I was one of the pastors on the trip to Myanmar, at that time called Burma. And after a week there, another pastor and I, a guy named Larry and I, went to Seoul, South Korea to encourage a church planner, a guy named Sung Wong Kong, in Seoul, South Korea. One evening, Larry and I ate dinner, and then we talked uh, and walked around the city just talking about Sung Wan's church plant and uh, about our families and dreams and ministry and all sorts of things. And Larry was a mentor of mine. He's probably 20 years older than me, just walking around with this kind of father in the faith, learning from him, talking to him. And I was startled at one moment when uh, a man approached us as we're walking in the street. And in, in broken English, he beckoned us to his shop. And as I looked around, I realized that we had wandered into the red light district of Seoul. I stood there startled and confused. Larry grabbed my arm and said, let's get out of here. He had zero hesitation. This father in the faith telling a 30-year-old man, move quickly away from the prostitutes. Get out of here now. As we look at Revelation 17 and 18 today, we're going to see the red light district of our world, the deception and seduction of Babylon, but we are also going to be grabbed by the arm and hear the mighty cry of the Lord beckoning us to come out of Babylon, out of that city. Run for your life. So we're going to cover chapter 17 and 18 today. We're going to fully read 17 right now. We'll cover 17, then we're going to fully read 18. Revelation 17. And then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and seven, sorry, and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction, and the dwellers of the earth, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast, because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads of the seven mountains on which the woman is seated, they are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. Verse 11. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes 
to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are the ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word. As we dive into chapter 17 of Revelation, we kind of double-click on what we saw in chapter 16 of the sixth and seventh bowl and examine more of Satan's demise. Point number one is this, the deception and seduction of the prostitute Babylon. What we end up having here is the opposite of the bride of Christ in this passage. It is a prostitute. It is Babylon. It is the world's deception and seduction that peoples and nations fall into. Verse 1 says that she is seated on many waters, and verse 15 clarifies that. It says the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are the peoples and the multitudes and the nations and the languages. So this is not just one location. This is everywhere on earth. And the great prostitute, the city of man, Babylon, verse 2, seduces the kings of the earth. Verse Three is seated on a beast, which we've known as the government systems and structures that oppose God. In verse 4, she is beautiful. She's adorned with purple and scarlet and gold and jewels and pearls. She draws the eyes. She pulls at the heart. And friends, verses 6 and 7 show us how hard that heart pull actually is. Even John, the apostle who was with Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration, who in chapter 4 and 5 saw the throne room of God, he marvels at this prostitute. The second part of verse 6, When I saw her, I marveled greatly, but the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? This marveling is not a good thing. This prostitute is full of deception. She is wearing the colors that priests would wear, She's wearing the colors that the bride, the city of God, the new Jerusalem has. She's a sham. She has the glitter on her face and the puffy lips and the elegant hair and the seductive speech. And John marvels at her. And so do we. She's seductive. And she seduces our world. She seduces who? The kings of the earth, verse 2. It's not just like the village idiot that, that this lady seduces. No, this is the most educated. This is the best leaders. These are the most gifted, the government officials, the policymakers seduced by this prostitute, seduced because she is beautiful. She whispers promises of success and ease and wisdom. 
and she's seated on the beast of oppression and government might. She's on the waters of all peoples and nations and languages. All are seduced by her. Not just one ethnicity, not just one continent, everybody. And notice that she is drunk. Verse 6, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of martyrs of Jesus. This woman who appears to be beautiful and harmless on the outside is full of evil, wickedness, murderous, loathsome practices. She targets her enemy. She hates Jesus and his bride. As we've seen in the Revelation story, friends, Babylon, this prostitute, will not put up with those loyal to Jesus. The prostitute, the seduction and deception rides on the back of government oppression and power seeking to destroy God's people. In verse 7 and 8, the angel exclaims that the prostitute and the beast or ex- explains them, and they're the opposite of the ways of God. We see a lot of opposites here. So God is the one who was and is and is to come. This beast is the one who was and is not and is to come. Now, the beast was, but then had a mortal wound. We saw that in chapter 13. We would say that would be the the crushing of, of his head by Jesus at the cross. And then has a fake resurrection. The beast was and then was not and then comes back, acting resurrected. And the beast has loyal followers, verse 8, the dwellers of the earth whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. So there's all these opposites we see. You've got to picture the opposites here to understand this text. Satan always twists. So the prostitute is the twisted bride of Christ. The beast is the twisted Jesus Christ. The followers of the beast are the twisted followers of Christ. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. All God does and all of who God is, the beast and the prostitute twist. We see it throughout Revelation. Deception, seduction, oppression. Deception, seduction, oppression. That's the way of the beast. That's the way of Satan. That's the way of the prostitute that we see throughout the text. Verse 9 then gives a warning to the original readers that would be wise to heed. Verse 9, this calls for a mind of wisdom. How many times have we seen that in the book of Revelation? Wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. There's like the faithful endurance theme, and there's the wisdom theme. We need wisdom. And verse 9 calls for wisdom because it starts saying this. This calls for the mind of wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Now, everyone in the original audience that's reading this would think something when it says seven mountains. They would think Rome. Rome is known as the city with seven hills or city on seven hills. So is Babylon, this woman, seated on Rome? Well, yes, but not just Rome. She's the seduction of every city of man. So yes, Rome But also, yes, London or Washington, D.C. or Sydney or Moscow or Berlin. 
The seduction and deception of Babylon is seated on the all governmental systems and structures of man, and she is always ready to seduce. Verse 10 through 13, then get into a section that can be confusing. and really does call for the wisdom of verse 9. The seven heads of the beast are seven kings. Five of them have already ruled. The sixth is ruling, and the seventh will rule for a little while. And then it says that the beast is the eighth that belongs to the seventh. We're like, what in the world does that mean? That's confusing. Some scholars try to figure out, well, if Rome is the seventh mountain, what is the eighth kingdom? How does that relate to the end times? And are the other seven, six kingdoms, the Egyptians, the Chaldeans, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, and then Rome being the seventh? It gets a little confusing and a lot of speculation. There's a lot of ink that has been shed (laughs) on this subject. Commentator Dennis Johnson says there's probably a simpler route here. The seven heads and the seven mountains speak of completeness. We've seen in numerology of Revelation this idea of seven being completeness. The completeness that happens with the beast. Yet five out of the seven kingdoms have already passed, so Satan's time is almost up. Yet the end is not yet. So what are we called to do with this? Here's what Johnson says. We are called to endure. We, church, are called to endure. Instead of getting bogged down and figuring out which kingdoms where, is this the Chaldeans and Medes? Is that really Rome as the sixth? And then what's the seventh? And is the eighth part of the seventh? And how does that work? We need endurance. Because there's 10 more kings. Verse 12, and then the 10 horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind. They hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of the Lord and Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Now, notice what's happening with those loyal to the beast. They have a unity. They're unified in opposition against the land. Now, just a little side note, all unity is not good. Sometimes our society, our culture celebrates this high achievement of unity, but if it's unity around the wrong thing, we're in trouble. They are united in opposing God here. They look to conquer the land. And friends, this is the battle line of Armageddon. We saw this in chapter 16. We'll see this in chapter 19. We'll see this in chapter 20. The kings of the earth battling the Lamb of God and his people. And what does Jesus say in chapter 16 to his followers at that moment when the line is drawn and the battle is about to happen? Here's what Jesus says. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeps, on his, keeps his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Christians, we must stay awake. We must stay awake. We must be alert. The battle is raging and will rage all the more as we come to the final battle. Dennis Johnson says this, the camera angles on this last battle vary as we move from chapter 12 to chapter 20. But the storyline they tell is consistent. 
Jesus' followers must be prepared for a period of unparalleled, intense persecution at the end, when evil forces now restrained will be released to work their worst on the church. Yet that time of trauma will be brief, and our enemy's final conspiracy will end not in the downfall of the church, as they expect, but in their destruction. Friends, the opposition is going to get worse at some point. Let me just kind of say a side note. I hope to give some more resources on this in the future. But this is an attack not on Israel, the country. This is an attack on Israel spiritually, which is the church. Okay, so if you're getting freaked out about Israel, the country being attacked, that's not what the Revelation talks about. What it talks about is Israel, the spiritual Israel, those grafted in are the ones who are going to get attacked at the end times. That's the bride. That's the church. Verse 14 shows that the lamb conquers. For all kings can unite against the lamb, but the lamb is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. The lamb is the one who conquers. He is the victor. But notice, notice who's with him. You battle-wearied saints, notice who's with him. The lamb is not alone here. The lamb could be alone, right? It's not like he needs anybody with him in this moment. This is a fascinating passage. We'll see it again as we continue looking at the battle in chapter 19. There's somebody with this warrior king that comes on a white horse. That's what you see in chapter 19. There's people with him. Who's with him? It's the saints. Verse 14, the lamb will conquer, conquer them. For he is Lord of Lord, King of Kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Friends, don't miss that. There will be brothers and sisters in Christ with the Lamb at the last battle. This may be us. This may be our kids. This may be our great grandkids. We're not sure. We've lived in the last days for 2,000 years. First Peter says a day is like a thousand years. We're like two days into this. Right? So, like, we're not even a week in to the, the church age. But there's the hope of those brothers and sisters in Christ who are with the Lamb. Their hope is not their superior fighting skills, their sword wielding. Their hope is not their speed and their strength. They did not earn a spot in the Lord's army. No, they were called with the eternal calling. They were chosen, chosen by Jesus before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. In love, God predestined them for adoption, Ephesians 1. And because they are called and chosen, they're given new hearts and new affections and new love, and they are faithful because God is faithful. And friends, don't miss this. You, if you're a follower of Christ, you are called, you are chosen by Christ, you're adopted into his family, and in Christ, you are faithful. That's good news to us. When you're feeling battle-wearied, this isn't the hardest battle that the church is going to face. But we're with him, and he is with us. And that's what Jesus said, right? 
as he's commissioning his disciples at the very beginning. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go make disciples of all nations. He tells you how to do it. And what's he end with? Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Friends, you need to know that. He is with you. The rest of chapter 17 explains to us what happens with the prostitute Babylon. She is devoured by the beast, the seductive city. The seductive luxury of Babylon will be eaten up and devoured by the beastly military might and government authority. 16b, they will make her desolate, naked, devour her flesh, and burn her with fire. Babylon is going down. We'll see more details of that as we cover chapter 18, but Babylon is going down. We must ask why. Well, she's going down because the 10 kings and beasts hate her. But yeah, why? Verse 17, for God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Wow. Wow. Friends, we must know God is in control the whole time. Though the beast has hatred and the kings have this unified opposition for the seductive city, it is God who put it there. Even though, this is what Greg Beale says, even though the beast and the kings join together in common cause, God himself is the ultimate author of the events. God is in control the whole time. The battle lines are drawn. Armageddon's about to happen. God's in control the whole time. And let's just say, if God's in control of this massive war against him and his saints, then God's probably in control of your day tomorrow at work or at school, right? Like I think we can go from greater to lesser right there. He is in control And friends, we must rest here. God is in complete control over all things. Even with deception and seduction and oppression coming at us, there's a lamb who conquered and continues to conquer. And we are with him and he is with us. God makes a way and thwarts the enemy's plans when the odds don't look good in our favor. As we saw, as we studied the book of Joshua together, the Lord will fight for you. Another application, when thinking about the seduction of the prostitute Babylon, a lot of scholars note the parallels between Queen Jezebel in the Old Testament and the prostitute in Revelation 17. Both are queens, both are seductive, both adorned with rich apparel, both greedy for riches, and like the list goes on and on and on. But we must note that in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus Jesus actually brings the seductive spirit of Jezebel to the attention of the reader, but it's not Jezebel out there. It's not Jezebel out there in Vegas or Jezebel out there in the red light district or Jezebel out there in Hollywood. No, Jezebel's in the church. That's what Revelation 2 says. Friends, John marveled. And so will you. If you don't have a heart and mind captivated by Jesus Christ. Honestly, if you don't have a battle plan on how to fight against seduction, you're already losing. 
Like it is that important and it is that difficult. In our day and age where companies are paying billions of dollars to get your eyes to look at things, where you are the product and I'm the product that they're selling to other businesses for you to scroll along or watch more, hit like more, share more, spend more, you will lose without a plan. And friends, we carry Babylon in our pocket all day long. And the seduction is there. It doesn't just go to TV like when I was a kid. You have to turn on television or go to a movie or look at something bad over here or talk that way or go to that place. You don't have to do that anymore. It's right there in the privacy of your pocket. We have to have a plan. And friends, if we have not thought thought through that for ourselves, for our families, we are not taking the intensity of the seduction seriously enough. And if you're not sure how, and you're just like, as you're even hearing me talk, you're like, ah, that sounds really important, but I don't know how to do that. We would love to help you. You have community group leaders and pastors who would love to come alongside you and care for you and talk about this, because this is a battle. This is a battle against lust. This is a battle against envy. This is a battle against greed and materialism and consumerism and pride and laziness and comparison and gossip and slander and coveting, and we could just keep going. It's a battle, but we know who wins the war. And so we battle on. We battle Babylon. In 2008, when the Great Recession was happening, when our economy was plummeting, something really sad happened. Many stock traders, folks in banking and mortgage industry, went into despair, and research now shows that the suicide rate rose during that time. 5,000 deaths happened in that time period, more than what happened in 9-11. Friends, if we believe the lies of Babylon, if we have made allegiance to Babylon, we will be devastated and crushed when those lies are exposed and Babylon is destroyed. What we find in Revelation chapter 18 is the fall of Babylon, and there are two very different reactions to that fall. Let's look at chapter 18 together. Verse 1, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, mighty voice. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine, the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in a cup she mixed 
As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her the like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Verse 9. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold and silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves, that is human souls. Verse 14, the fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. And the merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all those who trade is on the sea, whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour, she has been laid waste. Verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven. And you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of the harpists and musicians of flute players and trumpeteers will be heard in you no more. And the craftsmen of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For you, your merchants will, sorry, so your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all nations were deceived by her, your sorceries. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. 
we really find two types of calls are crying out in this text. There's the crying out of those loyal to Babylon, and there's the calling out of God toward those saying, have no loyalty to Babylon. Two different voices, two different motives, different views of the same scene. As we've often seen in the book of Revelation, we have different camera angles of the same scene. So we have this scene of Babylon, the prostitute, the world's seductive systems and prosperous economy being ravaged. How will people respond? Our text gives us kind of three positions of people, kings, merchants, and we'll just say shipmasters, though there's several categories of the people on the water. The kings love their luxury. They're weeping and wailing. Their privilege of wealth is gone. They see the great city of man being destroyed. The merchants, those who sold luxurious good. And let's just say that's an intense amount of, of products that they sell that John lists there. Gold, silver, jewels, cloth, spices, animals, and then even people. He just says human souls. This is bad. And they're gaining from this. It's, and the merchants are devastated. Verse 17, for in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. Their loyalty to Babylon, which brought prosperity, is now laying the groundwork of their destruction. And then the shipmasters, their sea trade is now burned up. They also see that in a single hour, the great city has been laid waste. So what we need to see is, th is this. Many grieve when Babylon falls. Many are loyal to what verse 2 says is the city, dwell, uh, the dwelling place of demons. Many have drunk the wine of her immorality, have sold their soul to the satanic influence of luxurious living. Friends, we've said that this city, Babylon, is any city of man, which is the city where you're from and the city where you live. How often we see people sell their souls for luxurious living. They just want the next thing, and then 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 the next thing. The Christmas present of one year is in the trash heap a year or two later, and then the next thing. How many a young Disney star, childhood actor or actress, we find the fateful tale of needs more and more fame, more and more attention till they get into their older years and they're in and out of rehab. And it's just sad. Again, you just see it again and again. Friends, Jesus said this. And this isn't just for the Disney star. This is for all of us. Mark 8, 36. What will it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. What will it profit you if you get all your dreams, if you get all of your accomplishments, all your agree, uh, degrees, all, your, all the things you've ever wanted? You got the house and the kids and the wife and the, all, all the things you've ever dreamed. You get it all. And what the Bible calls this life is a vapor is gone in 60, 70, 80 years, and you spend etern eternity tormented and in destruction 
because you've rebelled against God. What does it profit a man if he gains everything and yet forfeits his soul? Friends, the American dream has an underlying American scheme. You can't live beyond your means, dedicate your life to yourself, and be happy for long. The check comes due. Babylon does not let kings, merchants, and shipmasters perpetually prosper without equally enslaving them. They are the ones enslaved. You cannot drink poison for long and be unaffected. Friends, this is the world we live in. And there's a swiftness of judgment. Verse 10, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Verse 17, in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. Verse 19, in a single hour she has been laid waste. The destruction will come fast. The kings and the merchants and shipmakers who, who held on and thought this prosperity will last forever. Look how great this is. I got a new ship. I got a new thing over here. I got a new item to sell. Gone. Verses 21 through 24 speak of everything being undone. Where there used to be music and celebration and mills grinding food and rejoicing of wedding and buying and selling of goods, there is now death. There is now silence. Like the, the Titanic that has sunk, it's now gone under the water and all that is heard are whispered, frozen cries of those drowning. Darkness and death. Verse 21 says that a mighty angel took a stone, a great millstone, and threw it into the sea. Friends, this imagery comes from the original historic Babylon. The prophet Jeremiah was told to write the sins of Babylon on a scroll, tie that scroll to a rock, and throw it into the Euphrates. And like that rock and scroll will sink and never rise again, so will historic Babylon never rise again. This millstone speaks similarly. The sins of Babylon the Great will be sunk. But why a millstone this time? Commentator Greg Beale thinks it's because of these words in Matthew 18 that Jesus says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Friends, Babylon has tempted many a child of God to sin. And Babylon has executed and been drunk on the martyrs of Jesus. And now Babylon will have the millstone wrapped around her neck and thrown into the sea. Kings will grieve. Merchants will wail. Shipmasters will cry. Those loyal to Babylon will fall with her. And friends, I think in those moments of thinking about our loyalty and allegiance, we've got to remember the words from Paul to the Corinthian church. When I think about the letters of Paul to different parts of the world, Corinth feels very Babylonian. All cities are, but particularly Corinth. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what he says in verse 11, and such were some of you. He's talking to the church. The church has a past. Let's not act like we don't all have a past. If you're new here, man, we get, we're a mess. Like you look at our past, who we were before Christ saved us. He called us and he chose us. We got a past. Such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of our God, you were born. You and I were, were born with a loyalty to Babylon. We were seduced by Babylon. But this is not who you are now, believer. God calls us out from her. We don't have to live loyal to Babylon. We are united to Christ. Oh, friends. We're united to Christ. Such were some of us, but we don't have to live that way anymore because the sin was nailed to the cross, buried in the grave, and resurrection life is given to Christ and all who follow him. But with Babylon, I mean, some of us are probably getting a little nervous thinking, how do we escape Babylon? So we're like, okay, we're going to put our house for sale today and we're going to move to a monastery where Babylon's very far away. We're going to buy a big plot of land and invite all our friends to live on it. We're going to keep Babylon out. But friends, Scripture says that we're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. We live, work, and play in this world, but we're to be salt and light in this world. We're to be in this world, but our allegiance is not to this world. It does not define us. We live differently. We spend our money differently. We watch differently. We scroll differently. We read differently. We use our time differently. We speak differently. We prioritize differently, and we suffer differently because we're united to Christ, and we have life in him. And so, friends, notice the calls from God. God speaks to his people in chapter 18. There's devastation all around. There's literally having kings crying. Like, you don't just see it on the news like politicians just wailing very often. Kings are crying. Merchants are crying. The shipmasters are crying. And God calls out with much clarity. Verse 4, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. This echoes the words of Isaiah 52 and Jeremiah 51. God calling his people out of the idolatry of Babylon. Like Lot's wife, do not turn your head back, longingly for Sodom. God, like a good father, calling his children to not take part in the harmful, poisonous, deadly seduction of this world. He knows we are capable of this, and he knows how strong that pull is, and he knows that we must flee. He calls us out. Babylon's falling. Babylon will be paid what she owes. And though she thinks of herself as a queen, and though she thinks of herself as luxurious, and though she thinks of herself as bulletproof, 
She's going down. And God says, you will be burned in a single day. So that's first call, calling out in, chapter, in verse 4. And then verse 20 has this other calling out. So everybody's weeping around Babylon. And another voice cries out to the saints. Verse 20, rejoice over her, O heaven, you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Get that. That judgment is given for the saints. God is working for the saints. We've seen over and over, Revelation 6, the saints are under the altar, all, under the altar praying, Lord, how long? How long is this going to go on? And God says, it's done. It's happening here. It's given for you, for believers. And so we rejoice at Babylon's fall. Ding dong, the witch is dead. The wicked witch is dead. Now, we're not munchkins. And I'm not sure this is a mock mocking taunt. I think this is supposed to be rejoicing in the lamb who conquered, knowing that there are no more martyrs, no more family members dying because of their loyalty to Jesus, no more brothers and sisters in Christ beheaded, the judgment is just. God has fulfilled his plan. The good news of the gospel has gone forth. Everything God does is good, right, and true. Those who trust Christ, Jesus took the wrath from them that they deserved. Those who rebel against Christ, Jesus gives it fully to them, the wrath that they deserve. God is always just. And let me just say, if you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, we would love to talk to you about that. We would love to, to encourage you, beg you to, to trust Jesus, plead with you. I was with a guy just the other day. He's kind of a missionary to our city. We were talking to this lady just like a few streets over. And, and I'd never seen somebody do this as we're sharing the gospel with her. He's just like, please, please believe this. Please, please believe this. Please. Like he just kept doing that. I was like, I feel a little awkward right now, but I really appreciate his heart. And the lady may have become a believer that day. We're not fully sure. And we're following up with her. Please believe this if you don't know Jesus. Please trust Jesus as your Savior. We're going to end today with some diagnostic questions. Some of you guys love diagnostic questions, so you engineers in the room, now you get your pen out. First diagnostic question, are you as concerned about Babylon's seduction as you should be? Like, do you hear about John marveling and you're like, loser, you know, and you're like, it doesn't really concern you. are like, actually, this is John who wrote a lot of the New Testament like he was probably godlier than you, and he's marveling. He's seduced in some ways or tempted toward it. Friends, do you realize there's a real and present enemy of your soul? Or are you lingering in the red light district of Babylon? Are you lingering in seductive compromise? Are you imbibing the wine of Babylon's wisdom? Second question. Can you actively think through ways you are coming out of Babylon? So like actively, you're thinking right now of ways, purposeful, 
intentional ways you are coming out of Babylon. Because the call from God is to come out. So it's not like coming out by sitting here. You're like, come out, and you're like, yeah, I'm coming out. Like, no, you're not. You're still sitting there. Like, how are you actively, with your life, coming out of Babylon? Part of spiritual maturity is going from, from being a spiritual infant to a spiritual child to a spiritual young adult to a spiritual adult. Now, in your head right now, you're probably thinking which category you fit in. You may be wrong, just let you know that. You might want to ask somebody who knows you, maybe your spouse or roommate. They know. They know where you are, by the way. Um, but thinking through that, how do you mature? One of the ways is coming out of Babylon, fleeing the Babylonian idolatry. Spiritual maturity takes intentionality. We have to have a game plan, intentionality in how we live, how we use our time, how we are entertained, how we spend our money, how we use our phones, how we, like, just whatever you want to say category-wise, are you mature in that way? Or to put it another way, is Jesus Lord of that? Is he Lord of your calendar? Is he Lord of your work? Is he Lord of your bank account? Is he Lord of your mind? Is he Lord, like, is he Lord over all these areas? That's how we grow in spiritual maturity. But spiritual maturity also can only happen, the maturation process only happens from spiritual infant to spiritual child with the help of others. So we've seen the great prostitute and the seduction of her. Here's the great bride, the people of God. You need help, and I need help in the maturity process. We need to go from spiritual infants to spiritual children. And let's just note, spiritual infants spit up on people and poop their pants. Like, it's okay if you're a spiritual infant. You've just, if, you, if you expect a new believer that you just, you know, just came to know the Lord to be like a spiritual adult, you aren't understanding Scripture and the spiritual maturation process. So we need to expect this, but also be patient with it. Not getting mad at a little baby like, oh, you spit up! You're not supposed to do that. Yeah, they are. Why don't you feed yourself? Go get, go to the grocery store. I'm in a crib. Like, you can't do that. So we got to help those people. And friends, this is where the body of believers is so important. This is the bride of Christ. This is why we know others and are known by others. This is why you have spiritual gifts. Did you know that? You don't have spiritual gifts to be like, here's my t-shirt, spiritual gift. This is what I have. No. Your spiritual gift is for the common good, for the edification of others, for the building up of the body. Third diagnostic question, are you rejoicing at Christ's victory? How's the joy level? Our text calls us to rejoice in Babylon's fall. We want the world's systems exposed. There's a, there's a little bit of like edge that the believers have in this text. They, there's that, um, is it more than conquerors? What's the song that's like, we're defiant in your name? Like that's kind of what's going on in this text. There's some defiance in Jesus' name. There's a godly defiance of the world's systems because there's joy in Christ's victory. We want to pull people out of the poisonous lies of the evil one. We want to see justice done. 
We want to rejoice in the past of what Christ did on the cross, rejoice in the present of what Christ is currently doing in our world, and we want to rejoice in the future.